very softly to draw you in. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for today. We love to come together as a church, uh, as a representation of uh, the assembly that will one day gather around the throne uh, of you and of the Lamb from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we will say, worthy, worthy are you to receive blessing and honor and glory and power forever. And so we're thankful to get to enjoy a foretaste of that in our assembly this morning. And I pray that during this time you would uh, open our minds to understand the scriptures like uh, Jesus did for um, his apostles after he rose from the dead. God, I pray that you would give us insight into your plan especially your plan to exalt your son and to sum up everything in heaven and on earth under him as the head. God, we thank you that uh, you have seated him at your right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and you, has, you have given him as the head to us, to the church, to be our head. Uh, so we love belonging to Jesus, and I pray that you would increase our love for belonging to Christ. Thank you for making us your people in him. We come to you in his name. Amen. All right, so today we land the plane um, on this series on Christ's offices. They are three, prophet, priest, king, and we get that from the word Christ, which means anointed one. There were three offices that were anointed in the Bible uh, to pave the way for helping us understand what it would mean when Jesus is called the Christ, the anointed one, and those offices were the prophet, the priest, and the king. We've talked about what it means that Jesus is the anointed prophet of God, the ultimate anointed prophet of God, and also that he was the ultimate anointed priest of God. In the last couple of weeks, we have spent talking about Jesus's kingship, uh, how he uh, fulfills the office of the anointed king. Uh, and it's right that we've spent the majority of this session talking about king because that is, without question, the most prominent aspect uh, of, of what it means that Jesus is the Christ and holds that office. So much so, in fact, that... Um, the term, the Lord's anointed, or the Lord's Christ, came to be synonymous with Israel's king. Uh, so there are a few aspects of Jesus' kingship that um, we have left untouched, but probably nothing more important than this idea that Jesus fulfills the office of a king in the economy of redemptive history, in that he suffered. Uh, this is a theme that the Bible develops. We'll, we'll look at how it develops. Uh, that the one who is God's king is one who is a righteous sufferer. And more particularly, he suffers on behalf of his people. Um, just quickly by way of review, if you remember that God promised a king who would be an ultimate deliverer, a righteous representative before God, 
and a just ruler for his people would uh, issue in a reign of peace and equity and justice and righteousness. And God would use this promised ruler to restore his blessing, to roll back the curse and restore his blessing upon the subjects of his kingdom and also upon the realm of his kingdom, which is the creation, ultimately a new heavens and a new earth. And this promised king would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. David. And the centerpiece of God's promise for a king is God's covenant that he makes with David. Uh, remember God in 2 Samuel 7. Um, if, if that is not burned into your mind as, as a hub that the, the storyline of the Bible revolves around... Get it there. Second Samuel 7. Um, the covenant with David. It provides the, the skeleton for the storyline of the Bible in many ways. And God promises to David that one of his offspring will be king forever. And that this Davidic king will be considered a son of God. Which means uh, both he will have an, an intimate relationship with God. But also that he will be... Uh, a representative for God's people, even all of humanity. Adam was called a son of God. Israel was called God's son. And so, so the king in the line of David being called God's son also um, in, indicates the aspect of, of serving as a righteous representative of the people. And also this king who will reign forever in David's line uh, will also establish a dwelling place for God amongst the people. So through this king... The principle, God is with us, will be actualized. Here's where we're going to spend most of our time today. This promised king from David's line, God's anointed, God's Christ, will be a king who suffers. Before Jesus is an exalted king... And a glorified king, he is a suffering king. And there's one sense in which we looked at this last time that, that we were in this series a couple of weeks ago. Um, do you remember the first time that Jesus is, is identified as the king by the whole nation? And, and they say to him, hail king. And it is said to Israel, behold your king. And the first time that Jesus is crowned before Israel as a king is actually on the cross while he's suffering. And of course, uh, Pilate and the crowd, they're mocking him, but, but they speak better than they know, don't they? Uh, it, they what they say in jest uh, is glorious and true praise for those who understand that um, he is the king. And ironically, uh, the people are getting it right when they identify him as a king in ridicule while he's suffering is actually one of the times that they should have identified him as the king because God promised, as we're going to look, that his Christ, his anointed king, would suffer. Matthew 16. Um, this is the first time. So, so let me start by just affirming in the New Testament that uh, the Christ... And what I mean by that is God's anointed king, and for the rest of today, the Christ must suffer. Uh, in Matthew 16, that's 
the center point of the Gospel of Matthew. It's Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus says, all these people are saying all these things about who I am, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Both of those things uh, allude to the covenant with uh, David, that this king would be a son of God. And Jesus says, you're right, you're blessed, you got this idea from heaven, I'm going to build my church on confessions like this. And then it says... In Matthew 16, 21, right after Peter identifies, you're the Christ, you're the king. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. So it wasn't until it was out in the open in a concrete way that the disciples recognized, you're, the, you're God's king. You're God's promised anointed king. That's when Jesus began to teach them, yes, you're right. So, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. Right? And, and Peter's not understanding the Old Testament like he should, because then he hears that and says, no, no, that's no way for God's king. Um, and, and Jesus says, that's uh, satanic, the way you're thinking about this. Uh, likewise, uh, when Jesus calls himself uh, the Son of Man, uh, remember that, that he's picking that title up from a passage in the Old Testament that re refers to his kingship. Does anyone remember what it is in the Old Testament, the, the son of man who reigns forever? It's another very important passage. Daniel, yeah, Daniel 7, Daniel 7. Um, Daniel has this vision, and at the climax of this vision, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So this one like a son of man comes on clouds before the eternal God on his throne. And to him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And even the language of, of that vision. Uh, he receives dominion that all peoples, nations, and languages, all, every tribe, tongue, and nation should serve him. Revelation picks up on that. Um, and in Revelation, then, they all, the, this multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation, they do acknowledge his dominion. They worship him. Uh, and th this son of man, Daniel 7, continuing, says his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. So the same promise he made to David. All right, And, and this is Jesus' preferred self-designation. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. And uh, if you don't know the Old Testament background, you think, oh, that's a very humble way for Jesus to speak, to emphasize his humanity. Well, maybe that's part of it, but... Uh, I think the chief thing Jesus has in mind in calling himself the son of man is that he's the promised king who will reign forever in the line of David. And I think that that's a right way to interpret Jesus calling himself that because uh, at his trial before the high priest in Mark 14, he's asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming with the clouds of heaven. How striking then is it when Jesus says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. God's promised king came to suffer on behalf of his people. Uh, we could add things like John 10, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Shepherd, as we've talked about, is a motif uh, in the Bible for royalty, among other things. Uh, when God says to David, uh, I, I have made you shepherd over my people, he isn't saying uh, you're the, the sweet man who gives food to my people. He's saying you're the king, you're the leader. And so when Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, uh, if, if you take a, a big picture Bible understanding of uh, the motif of shepherd, he's saying, oh, well, here it is again. The king, the leader who lays down his life, who suffers for his people. Where did this idea come from? That the anointed forever king of God would suffer. This was not unforeseen, or it should not have been unforeseen. Um, the disciples and the nation of Israel clearly did not expect their king to come and suffer, but, but they should have. The scriptures foretold this about God's Christ. If God would fulfill his promises concerning his king, it was necessary that the king would suffer. Um, so, In fact, right after uh, the disciples made it clear that they knew Jesus was the Christ, we mentioned this, he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer. After Jesus rises from the dead in Luke 24, an angel at the tomb says, He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Later in that chapter, still Luke 24, Jesus meets a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus. And he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What, is he, what does he have in mind that the prophets said? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think we're safe to assume, especially he focused on how it was necessary that the Christ, God's anointed king, would suffer. Later, same chapter, Jesus appears to his apostles and says, These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, that's a, the three-part designation of the whole Old Testament, according to how the um, Hebrews structure it. Everything written in the Old Testament about me must be fulfilled. And then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. So, so no verse in the Old Testament says, quote, the Christ should suffer, end quote. So when Jesus says, thus it is written, he's, he's taking a big idea from the Bible and says, it is written in the scriptures, the Christ should suffer. First Peter 1, uh, the prophets prophesied and inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he, the spirit of Christ, speaking in the prophets, predicted the sufferings of Christ. Okay, I could keep going like this. Um, Peter's ministry in Acts. He says, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. What did God say through the mouth of all the prophets? 
that his Christ would suffer. Paul does this too. Uh, Paul's custom is to go into the temple and reason with people from the scriptures and explain and prove from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, uh, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul says, uh, you think that Jesus' suffering uh, is an impediment to him being recognized as God's forever king. But look at the Bible. Actually, and ironically, that's the thing that is, is uh, maybe the most prominent part of his bona fides for being recognized as God's king. Okay, so all this poses a great question, doesn't it? Uh, how and where is it so patently clear in the Old Testament... In the prophets, the law, the Psalms, that the Christ of God, the anointed Davidic king, would, would come and necessarily suffer before beginning his glorious reign. All right, well, the Old Testament anticipates this. If it doesn't, we're in real trouble, right? Uh, Jesus and his apostles are, uh, have laid a faulty foundation for us if, if the Old Testament doesn't anticipate this. But it does. So, uh, your faith stands. The first place everyone's mind probably goes, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. One will come and God will lay on him the iniquity of us all. And um, he will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Uh, this beautiful picture of suffering on behalf of people. Does that passage say that it's God's promised king? Who will do that? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, that passage actually starts at the end of 52. Turn in your Bibles there, please. And um, the subject of, of this talk about vicarious suffering and sin-bearing is the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So before talking about the way that this servant suffers, it talks about the, the servant will be high and lifted up. The servant will be in an exalted place. And in Isaiah, there are several places that talk about um, the Lord's servant. And there are four places that have been traditionally called... Traditionally, I think this started in the 80s, so, but uh, for me, it's been traditionally called the servant songs, the servant songs, uh, where it, it seems to be talking about the same person identified as the Lord's servant uh, who suffers, but he also reigns as king. Uh, Isaiah 53 is the fourth and last of the servant songs, the first one is in Isaiah 42. Turn there. Isaiah 42. Behold, verse 1. Behold my servant, same dude, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Think of Jesus' baptism. Uh, 
when the Spirit came to anoint him, to identify him as the anointed one. And a voice from heaven says, this is the one in whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. Uh, back to Isaiah 42. I have put my spirit on him. Again, Jesus is anointing his baptism. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, if you've heard some of that language before, maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm, I'm more familiar with Isaiah than I thought. Well, maybe not, because these verses are quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, saying that they're fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 4, he, the Lord's servant, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So the Lord's servant is this, this uh, king who will establish justice and equity and peace in the earth. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you, this servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. It's a really interesting phrase. And a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Uh, so this king will also be one who reigns not over Israel, but over the nations. He will be a light to the nations. He will bring salvation, not only to Israel, but to the nations. Uh, the second servant song of Isaiah is in chapter 49. Turn to chapter 49. And at first, it seems like God clearly identifies this character, my servant, as the whole nation of Israel. In verse 3, he says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But then as you keep reading, it seems actually that this servant is one who is distinguished from the nation. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So the servant of the Lord uh, is one who saves Israel. So, so the servant of the Lord is obviously distinct from the nation. Well, how do we reconcile these things? That God could call his servant specifically the king, and also the whole nation. Remember this idea that the king is a righteous representative of his people. We, we talked about the, the phrase we used was corporate solidarity or corporate representation or corporate headship where the king embodies and um, all the people are summed up in him. As the king goes, so the people as the king goes, so it is credited to the people, for better or for worse. Um, so, uh, this is not a problem, right? Uh, this king, who will be the Lord's servant, is also representative of the whole nation in his actions, including in his suffering. He suffers, and it is counted as, rightly, as the suffering of his people, his 
It is vicarious and is credited to them. Verse 6, he said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So that, that's too small a thing for you to save just Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 7, we have the first explicit indication that this righteous king will suffer, be rejected. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. But then what the Lord says to this despised one shows that his will be the ultimate victory. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One who has chosen me. Uh, the third servant song is in chapter 50. Jeremy, chapter 50. And we won't look at all of this. Uh, but this third servant song also clearly anticipates the suffering of the servant again. I'm thinking verse 6. 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This happened very literally to Jesus, right? And the servant says that, that I willingly give myself over to suffer. Um, the next three verses in this third servant song, the Lord's servant expresses hope that despite suffering, he will be helped by God and ultimately vindicated. He will not ultimately be put to shame. And then um, the pinnacle, the fourth servant song, starting at the end of 52. Behold, verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Can anyone think of any other place in Isaiah where one is described as high and lifted up. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Um, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, the king has a vision. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple. I think this is why the Gospel of John in John 12 John says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. When did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus? Well, that vision of the Lord reigning in the temple in Isaiah 6. How, how can he rightly identify that with Jesus? Well, because the servant of the Lord is one who is high and lifted up. And there's only one other place in Isaiah where someone is called high and lifted up. And that also refers to God in Isaiah 57. Uh, the Lord is called the one who is high and lifted up. Uh, so here, when he says, my servant will be high and lifted up, there's, there's also uh, a sense in which a divine shadow is cast over this one who will suffer as the righteous king and reign, uh, reign even from the temple, the dwelling place of God. We don't have time to read through all of this, so uh, look down also to uh, 53.2, talking about the servant. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant. Does anyone's translation say something different than young plant? A shoot. A shoot. You could translate this, okay? Um, He grew up before him like a young plant or a shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Well, where else in Isaiah is someone called both a shoot and a root? Isaiah 11. Talking about who? The promised king in David's line. From the stump of Jesse, a shoot will arise. It looks like the Davidic dynasty is over. Jesse was David's father. But, but, bing, there's hope. A shoot from Jesse will arise. And then it talks about all this king will do. And then it... it uh, 1110 or something, he's called not only the shoot of Jesse, but also the root of Jesse. So this suffering of the Lord is is identified by by being called again a shoot and a root with the Davidic king from Isaiah 11. Uh, And I wish we could read this, but it's beautiful. What will this king do? Bear our sorrows, carry our griefs, uh, be crushed for our iniquities, receive chastisement that brings us peace, receive wounds that heal us. And this suffering servant of the Lord is no other than the promised forever king in the line of David, God's Christ. Isaiah calling this coming king, my servant, fits in with um, the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, in in Isaiah, Isaiah 37, 35, uh, Isaiah calls David my servant. That's when Sennacherib, is, king of Assyria, is threatening Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to deliver Jerusalem for the sake of my servant David. Um, David is called my servant repeatedly, especially in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Uh, in Psalm 89, which, which is a psalm that celebrates the covenant God makes with David... God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And even when God makes the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, he says, uh, he says to Nathan, say to David, my servant. So even the phrase, the servant of the Lord, has a, a Davidic um, connotation to it especially in these contexts. Not everywhere that someone's called a servant in the Bible, you should think, David. But in this case, yes. Yes. So uh, that, that's the most prominent one. Um, the servant songs of Isaiah, that the coming anointed king would suffer necessarily. Any questions about that? Daniel 9 is another interesting place. Let me warn you as you turn to Daniel. Um, if, you thought, if you think Isaiah is full of thick symbolism that is difficult to penetrate and understand, just you have got another thing coming to you when we get to Daniel. Um, Old Testament prophecy can be notoriously difficult to track with. And then there's another genre called apocalyptic that, that takes up the symbolism to a whole nother level. So I'm not going to try to uh, wade through all of the interpretive issues of the passage we're about to read. 
partially because I can't, all right? <laughs> I, uh, I owe the book of Daniel uh, many hours of study before I can speak about it. <clears throat> but this little section I feel, I feel good about. Um, verse 24. There's a vision about, uh, that Daniel has about how God will save his people and install his king. Remember, this is just a couple of chapters after Daniel 7, the Son of Man receiving dominion forever. And in Daniel 2, there's this vision of a rock that comes and crushes all the other kingdoms and ends up being a kingdom itself that lasts forever. Okay, so how will God initiate his kingdom? Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And, and here's the purpose of whatever is meant by the 70 weeks. Here will be the result. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem... To the coming of an anointed one, the coming of a Messiah, the coming of a Christ, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Does anyone's translation say something other than prince? Coming of an anointed one, comma, a, maybe ruler, leader. Everyone has prince. Wow. I'm in chapter 9, 9, 925. 925. The Geneva Bible says prince? Wow. King? <clears throat> Very tempted to launch on a rabbit trail about um, why this would be translated prince. I think it's something good they're trying to communicate. We can talk about it later if you want. <clears throat> Those of you who come to student ministries know that was a real victory for me, not, not to go down that way. <clears throat> um, so here's a main question. Who is this anointed one who's being referenced? I think that it can be shown that it's the promised king in David's line. Again, uh, anointed one in the Old Testament is usually a king, so you're leaning hard that way anyway, but you're not sure. Uh, but then... Perhaps all doubt is removed when it follows up the note about this coming one by identifying him as a prince, a royal leader, or a ruler. Um, and, and nowhere in the Bible is there uh, this word, a prince who is anointed, except for David's immediate predecessor, Saul, and David's immediate successor, Solomon. Um, those references are 1 Samuel 9, 16, 1 Samuel 10, 1. That's Samuel. And then Solomon, 1 Chronicle 29, 22. They anointed Solomon as prince for the Lord. And actually, this is also a very common word uh, that's used to refer to David. And especially even when God is establishing the covenant with David. 
therefore, this is how this is the opening line from the covenant with David in Second Samuel. What chapter? Second Samuel seven. Thank you. I was going to break my heart. <laughs> therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I think as, uh, if that wasn't enough to convince you, ah, this anointed prince is, is the promised king from David. You could also add the evidence that, that this coming prince here in Daniel is associated with um, rebuilding Jerusalem. Restoring the nation and anointing a most holy place. Well, who was commissioned to build uh, a holy place for the Lord in Jerusalem? The Davidic king, Solomon. So when the readers of Daniel get to this point, if their mind is full of the Bible, the Old Testament, they'll read this. I think they would have thought, ah, yes, God, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, the covenant with David. What is this anointed one going to do? Look at verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. And that's Old Testament parlance for be killed. He shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And shall have nothing. A very wooden way to interpret that phrase is, um, and there is nothing for him, or you could say, and not for him. So as it reads here, it appears that, oh, his death will be actually death. I mean, he's not taking his stuff with him or something like that, right? He's really dying. He will have nothing. But I read a few people, and, and they convinced me that actually a better way to understand and maybe even therefore translate this phrase would be, and Messiah will be cut off and not for himself. He will, his death will not be for himself. It will be a vicarious death. He will, he will be cut off on behalf of others. And of course, what's the ultimate effect of this coming anointed prince's vicarious death? Well, we read in verse 24, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. Uh, we could read Daniel 7. I think that also indicates that the Lord's Christ necessarily will suffer. The Son of Man of Daniel 7 will come and suffer. Um, Jesus, when Jesus said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom, uh, in part, that's because he understood his office correctly because of what he had said through the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, if we're going with 1 Peter 10, the spirit of Christ in the prophets prophesied about Christ. Um, but I want to make sure that we hit Roman numeral 4 in the mold of David. So we'll skip Daniel 7, skip Zechariah Zechariah is also apocalyptic genre. If we have time, we'll come back to that. But we probably won't. A very important sense in which the New Testament says that Jesus' suffering fulfills the Old 
Testament predictions of the Christ is that Jesus' suffering is like the suffering of David. David casts a mold. He's the prototype of God's anointed king. And Jesus, uh, in, in a superlative way, fills that mold. He's the perfect new David. And that includes his suffering. Um, so the New Testament authors see this correspondence between David's personal suffering and the suffering that David's greater son, the Messiah, will experience. Just as David, God's first anointed king, suffered greatly before he was installed as king, so too his greater son will suffer greatly before being installed as king. The one who has all authority in heaven and earth, seated at God's right hand. Um, I'm going to show you examples, but, but I want to front the explanation and, and then maybe the examples will help turn on the lights for you. But many, many of David's words in the Psalms, that if you're just reading the Psalms, seem like it's David talking about his own suffering. They are applied to Jesus and said to be fulfilled even by Jesus in the New Testament. This is not a misapplication of David's words to apply them to Christ. David himself, Acts 2 will show us, David understood that his own suffering, his, own, his life, his reign, but also his suffering, set a pattern that his greater son would follow. So sometimes David is reflecting upon his own suffering, and then without any indication that he's uh, thinking about the suffering of the Messiah, will start talking about personal suffering in ways that you think, I don't remember David suffering like this. Um, Acts 2 says that's because David is a prophet and he uh, predicted the sufferings of the Christ to come. Uh, but he does so in a way that it's, if you're just reading the Psalms without the help of the New Testament, it, it seems indistinguishable from David's own suffering. Well, that's because the two are correspondent. So one of the major, major ways that the scriptures predict the sufferings of Christ is, yes, is, so you, man, I do love grammar, um, is uh, David, David, and especially his expressions of suffering in the Psalms. Okay. Let's look at these. Turn to Psalm 34, and we'll just camp in the Psalms for whatever time we have left. I want to show you how this plays itself out. This is, this is wonderful. All right, Psalm 34. So what is this psalm about? Well, there is a handy little superscription um, under the title. If you have a title of the psalm above the number that says something like, taste and see that the Lord is good, well, that's from, if you have a Bible like mine, the good people of Crossway gave it this title. Um, it's not its traditional title. You can say, even from my definition of traditional. Um, but that next part where it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out. And he went away. Uh, 
that's translating the Hebrew of the Bible. And, and there's debate about whether or not we should consider these um, uh, superscriptions, I think they're called. I'm not sure why I haven't heard that word anywhere else, but whether or not they should be considered inspired words of the Bible or if copyists added them later. Regardless, uh, they're very helpful um, and, and confirm for us that many of the Psalms are written by David, the majority of them. So anyway, this is a Psalm about David uh, reflecting on his experience of suffering before this king, that he has to pretend he's crazy uh, to protect himself. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. So David's celebrating the Lord's deliverance of him. Later in the psalm, David expands this praise to talk about how the Lord just deals with the righteous generally, of which his own suffering is... Um, an example, David's experience typifies the way the Lord delivers the righteous sufferer. Look at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. John says, when Jesus is being crucified, all these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Remember, they, they stabbed Jesus with a spear instead of breaking his legs like they do the other criminals. Why? To fulfill this scripture. What is this scripture about? It seems to be about David's deliverance from personal suffering. So Jesus on the cross fills the mold of the righteous sufferer whom the Lord will deliver. And it corresponds to David's suffering, who typifies that principle as well. Another example, also from John 19, um, when Jesus, knowing that, that all was finished, he said, and John adds the note, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus says, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stands there. They put a sponge of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they hold it to his mouth. All right, well, what scripture is fulfilled? It doesn't seem to be like a predictive prophecy in the sense that some Old Testament prophet said, um, and the Christ will come and he shall say, I thirst. And then they shall give to the Christ sour wine to drink. No, look at Psalm 69. This is a psalm of, you guessed it, David. David. David starts the psalm by talking about his plight. Seems his personal plight. In verse 1, save me, O God. Waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. I've come to deep waters. Um, verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. So on and so forth. Verse 19, of Psalm 69, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. 
they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Again, David reflecting on his personal suffering. In verse 21, he's probably speaking poetically about his sufferers, that those, his afflictors, that those who were close to him um, tried to afflict him under the guise of helping him. They gave me food, but it was actually poisoned. They gave me wine, but it was sour. Um, but again, what seems like David describing his suffering is applied to Jesus, and Jesus fulfills it. And what that means in this case is he fills the mold of the promised anointed king. His suffering matches David's suffering. Another example from Psalm 69. Uh, look at verse 9. That Both parts of this verse are applied to Jesus. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Well, that's David. David either speaking about himself or speaking about the Messiah in the first person. And John... Uh, John 2, when Jesus clears the temple, his disciples remember the scripture. Ah, oh, zeal for your house will consume me. This is, here it is, the Davidic king being consumed by zeal for God's house. And the second part, uh, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul in Romans 15 says, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. If you don't turn back to the Old Testament to see that quotation, you're right. Oh, what a beautiful prediction of the Messiah suffering. And it is, but just not in the way that we normally think. It is a prediction of the Messiah's suffering because the Messiah fills the mold of the Davidic king, suffering. Okay, I'm, I'm building a case. Remember, what is all the purpose of all of this? To show you that the scriptures said it is necessary that the Christ must suffer. The king must suffer. Um, I'll just go quickly through a few others. Psalm 41. Psalm 41, David says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then when Judas is about to betray Jesus in John 13, 18. He says, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 35, another psalm of David. Um, 35, verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without a cause. John 15. Uh, Jesus says, whoever hates me hates my father also. They have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is fulfilling the suffering of God's Christ, who in David's day was David. So, so David knew when he's writing about his suffering, he's writing about the suffering that is attached to his office, necessarily, as God's anointed king. Uh, wow, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross... You know that um, he, he's many times, at least three, he's quoting scripture and specifically he is quoting Davidic exp expressions of suffering. We already looked at I thirst. What about Psalm 31, a psalm of David? 31.5, into your hands I commend my spirit. Psalm 22, the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Psalm 22, 
let, let's turn there. It's worth spending the rest of our time in Psalm 22. Some people have looked at Psalm 22 and said, well, this is, this is not David reflecting on his suffering at all because um, it, he seems to be talking about not just persecution but an execution. And he talks about it in ways that seem to perfectly describe a crucifixion, which wasn't uh, a death penalty that was in practice at that time. So, okay, surely this is David predicting the suffering of Messiah. And, and that's probably true. That's probably true because Acts 2 says David was a prophet and foreseeing the sufferings of his greater son of Christ, he spoke about that. But uh, what Calvin said that uh, Psalm 22 actually was David speaking metaphorically about his own suffering. Um, so it's not clear, but at least you have to say, even if Jesus in Psalm 20, even if David in Psalm 22 is, is only reflecting upon the suffering of the Messiah, he does so from the first person. It starts out a Psalm of David, my God, my God. Why are you forsaking me? Of course, Jesus picks up that line on the cross. Um, wow. Psalm, Psalm 22 is incredible. Um, they have pierced my hands and feet, verse 16. All who see me mock me, they wag their heads, verse 7. Exactly Jesus' experience. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments for my clothing. They cast lots. Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And this is interesting. In Hebrews 2, uh, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, and then puts these words as if they're in Jesus' mouth. Later in Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, another Davidic psalm is put in the mouth of Jesus, so to say. As if the author of Hebrews is thinking, well, of course this is true about Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, and then he quotes a psalm of David. I said we'll end with 22, but let's end with 16. Because we have a minute. No, Acts 2. Turn to Acts 2. Acts 2. This is where Peter quotes. Psalm 16. So you're not being cheated out of Psalm 16. Peter, Peter quotes it verbatim. <clears throat> and here Peter gives a helpful explanatory note after he quotes Psalm 16 about how David knew when he wrote about his sufferings that he was writing about how uh, the one who would fill his office perfectly and forever as God's king over his people would also share in those sufferings. Acts 2.25. Acts 2.25. David says concerning him, concerning Christ, I saw the Lord always before me. Again, speaking in the first person, even though he's, speak, he's writing according to Peter concerning Jesus. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. End of Davidic Psalm, verse 29. Brothers, Peter uh, expositing the text. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. So Peter says that as if to say, remember that thing that, uh, that David said in Psalm 16 about how God wouldn't let his soul go to Hades, Sheol, the realm of the dead, not hell. Um, or let your holy one see corruption. Well, it seems like his body is being corrupted in the grave. He died. Well, here's what happened. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, a verse that is incomprehensible if you don't remember 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So, so David knew that even while he reflected on his own suffering, he was also speaking about the suffering of his greater son. Uh, and and when, when David spoke about his own suffering in, in ways that were metaphoric, like, they gave me sour wine to drink. Um, he will not let abandon my soul to Hades. That those things were true of him in a symbolic way of his own sufferings, but they would be literally true of his greater son. Specifically, that uh, his greater son would be raised from the dead and reign forever. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the Bible. And thank you that you so clearly predicted the suffering of your anointed king. Thank you that you sent Jesus to fill that office, to put an end to sin, to finish transgression, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Um, we join the multitude of heaven uh, and, and acknowledge that, that the root of David is also the lamb who was slain for us. And uh, we praise you, we thank you so much for him, and we come to you only in his name. Amen.